Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Because the Stick to Wrestling podcast has started. I want to thank Casey and the Sunshine Band for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. This is Stick to Wrestling. I'm John McAdam. If you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a wicked good and a raw bone podcast. Before we get rolling, I want to invite everyone to join our Facebook page. If you go on Facebook and put in Stick to Wrestling in the search, you know what happens. It's a cool group. We talk about wrestling. We talk about some other stuff sometime. By the time this episode comes out, I will post my probably top 40 college football teams, pre-bowl, of course. And also, if you want to follow me on Twitter, just search for John McAdam and follow the guy who has wrestlers fighting with chairs in his avatar. I usually stick to wrestling on my Twitter, but not 100%. One last thing, I don't talk about this enough. This is episode number 183, and if you like the episodes, We've got 182 more waiting for you. They're free. Check them out. You're more than invited. Stick to Wrestling has evolved since show number one, two, three, to say the very least, but I still think those were good shows. Those were good, interesting shows, and like I said, they're free. Check them out. And with that, I am going to bring on a guest who was on recently, but no one ever gets tired of this guy, Lou Kippelman. Lou, thank you for stepping in at the last minute and hosting this show. I had a guest lined up, and then I had to switch recording days, so Lou jumped in in a pinch, and Lou, thank you for this. Oh, sure thing. I don't mind being the Charles Nelson Riley to your Johnny Carson. That was when Carson needed somebody for an opening on The Tonight Show. Boom, called Charles Nelson Riley, and he was there in in a flash. Would you believe, Lou, that Thomas Bain used that exact analogy to volunteer his services. And for whatever reason, you couldn't do this. I would have contacted Tom. He used that exact same analogy. <laughs> so I've got two Charles Nelson Rileys at my disposal. <laughs> oh, God. I No. Boy, that was a horrible impression. I was never good at picking up on guys being gay when I was young. <laughs> I'm probably still not good at it now. <laughs> and my brother was good at it. He's like, oh, he looks at like uh, Paul Lynn or Charles Nelson Riley. He's like, that guy wants to be a girl. Like he's eight years old saying this. Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't have all the talent in the family. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes uh, sensory perception like that needs to be uh, tuned or dialed in. I have a very low. What was the. Not IQ, but EQ, emotional quote, intelligence quotient, that, that thing they were talking about in the 90s. Like, I got nothing. <laughs> well, you know. I'm disabled. Oh, you're, you're differently abled. You are. <laughs> oh, it, it's, it's totally true. I mean, I'm really good at math and, you know, other stuff. But ask me to assemble something, and I'll break it. <laughs> That's just who I am. I'm with you, too. <laughs> yeah. The construction and uh, physical labor or doing anything with my hands, Gene, while certainly uh, not very strong among uh, American Jews of European ancestry. Ah. Yeah. It's a particularly recessive gene uh, in my generation. (laughs) I ordered it. You see, I ordered an exercise bike maybe three or four months ago, 
and I was able to assemble it. It works, but it took me, I'm telling you, it had to take me three or four times longer to put it together than the average person. But anyway, I'll stop bragging. (laughs) We had a show last summer when Paul Orndorff passed away. We went year by year and picked out a result from one of his matches and talked about what was going on in his career. And my original person I was going to do this with was Ivan Koloff. And Orndorff passed away. I'm like, wow, this would be a good way to pay tribute to Paul. And today we're going to do it with Ivan Koloff. Starting in 1976, Lou, there was a match in the Boston Garden, July 10th, 1976. Bruno Sammartino teaming with Ivan Putzky to take on Ivan Koloff and Stan Hansen in a best two out of three fall match. Lou, what are your thoughts on this match, like, in your mind? Well, obviously the first red flag is... uh one of these workers is not like the other. That being uh, Ivan Putsky, who by 76, I don't know if he was still doing the faux Igor gimmick or not. He was not. Oh, okay. So he was just horrible without any of the charm. Then. <laughs> I mean, you're talking about, yeah, San Martino, of course, Bruno being Bruno, Putsky being the uh, filling in and the Chief J, you know, Robin to uh, the Italian Batman. I can tell you by this point, Ivan Putsky had stepped up and he was the number two baby face and Strombo was a little bit further down the trough. Ah, okay. And this, yeah, by the date there, it would have been very early on in your uh, wrestling fandom, right? Very early on, I begged my dad to take me to the show and the, the answer was absolutely not. This was right after, and the reason it's a tag team match, and this is the last time... We would have a tag team match main eventing the garden until 84 or 85 is Bruno was just coming off the neck injury. So basically, and this makes no sense, but they put Ivan Putsky out there to do the work and have Bruno basically stand in the corner and not do anything. I know someone who went to this match and they described it to me and they, they booked it. It sounds like they booked it perfectly where every time Stan Hansen would be fighting Ivan Putsky and then Bruno would get tagged and Stan would run for his life and tag Ivan Koloff and just got total heat, building up to the first Stan Hansen versus Bruno Sammartino match in Boston in 1976. Ah, very good. Yeah, I was going to ask if it was post-accident at MSG, or so evidently it was. Lou, have you seen the footage from that match? Of the the MSG match yes. with the the botched body slam. Yes. Hmm. It's okay if I have it. <laughs> had, I haven't seen it in a very long time. Okay, you you know what you haven't seen it. I'll tell you why. There was footage of the match that was released after Bruno took that bump, and I, I've had it forever. But you know, match joined in progress when Bruno passed away. They put on WWE Network, and this is available on Peacock. Not the entire match, but they showed the bump, and oh my god, I mean, it was incredible. The the bump Bruno took, he like a, a dart going straight down into the canvas. I mean, he's lucky Hanson didn't kill him. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so that's available on Peacock for everyone to check out, but like, you know, be ready, because it's kind of, it, it, it will take you aback. Yeah, I'm sure. Boy, this would have been... It was Hansen's first run in New York, and by this time, Koloff had been uh, in and out of the territory for about, what, eight years or so? Yeah, he came back 
uh, I want to say fall 1975, and by this point, he had already done his series with Bruno Sammartino in Boston, New York, Philadelphia, etc. I overuse this term a bit, but he was kind of on his way out here, and I'm certain that you know they said the second fall ended by DQ, and the I'm I know who got pinned in the first fall. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah, this was a time where wrestling had, had really captured my imagination. I was I was dying to go see this match. And, of course, they have the Bruno versus Hanson singles match the next month, which sells out. And after that, they have Bruno versus Hanson in the cage. Oh, okay. And around that same time, they, they had a rematch at Shea, right? For the uh, Inoki Ali uh, close circuit. Yeah, that was, uh, I believe, June 30th, 1976. And that was Bruno's first match back. Okay, so that would have been about a month prior. Yeah. And it's interesting, the pairing of Hansen and uh, Koloff, in that I think they would be featured as a team, if I'm not mistaken, in Georgia later on. They would be. And at that point, in 76, Hansen had been working for about three years, and I got to wonder if that's uh, kind of the first the first time they've teamed up, or one of the first. I will bet it's the first time they teamed up because Hansen, at this point in the WWF, was almost primarily, almost exclusively, a singles wrestler. And as time went on, he started teaming up with Bruiser Brody in the WWF, which was really cool. And obviously that went on to be a legendary tag team. Right. And of course, he and Brody got a big like initial push in the Oklahoma McGurk territory prior to that. Yeah, back then, this was when Brody came to the WWF in 1976. It was the first time he was billed as Bruiser Brody. Before that, he was Frank Goodish, his real name. Yes, Frank the Hammer. So, 1977, Ivan Koloff has moved on from the WWF. We have him at the Fort Homer Hesterly Armory in Tampa, a place I wish I could have gone to see wrestling. Ivan is now teaming with Pat Patterson. They were the Florida Tag Team Champions against, what a team, Dusty Rhodes and Jack Briscoe. What a match. Yeah, exactly. You got four all-time great workers in a tag team match. I wonder, I know Dusty Rhodes was his own kind of supernova, as was uh, Jack Briscoe. And after Dusty started his babyface run in 74, I'm not sure exactly how many times he and Jack Briscoe would end up teaming in matches like this. I mean, talk about a, a styles clash, if you would. <laughs> if you would. Yeah. <laughs> if you will. Yeah. And and I remember at the time being a little bit surprised. I was still new to wrestling. I had started getting the magazines. Pat Batterson had been a babyface in California the whole time I had been a fan, and now he's in Florida, and he's a bad guy. Like, what's going on here? Yeah, and at that point... It, it wasn't too long prior that Patterson took his leave of the Roy Shire territory. And if I'm not mistaken, Florida was kind of his first post-San Francisco run. That is correct. Of any length. And then it wasn't too long after that he would reunite with Ray Stevens in the AWA as the Blonde Bombers. But uh, yeah, Patterson had been a solid number one babyface in San Francisco from, I want to say about 72 on. When it was Lars Anderson, I think it was Lars Anderson and Paul DeMarco who kind of turned on Patterson. And his run as a heel in San Francisco went for the better part of seven years. 
And, of course, by that point, the fans were looking for any reason to cheer him. And it was something else from what I've heard. But he got back, you know, made it to Florida, did his uh, short run as a heel. And I believe Koloff turned on him or they had some sort of issue where there was a breakup of the team. And then Patterson, his baby face, kind of took a powder shortly thereafter. Yeah, I, I also think, too, in 1977, I'll... Pat Patterson wrestled at Madison Square Garden as a babyface for the very first time. And uh, obviously, two years later, he would be here basically forever. Lou, do you know why? I haven't read Patterson's book. Do you know why he left San Francisco? I mean, I'm guessing the money just dried up, but I have no idea. Yeah. Unfortunately, I have not read the book. I did read Rock Rims's book called When It Was Big Time, which many influential people, Jay Cornette, our boss, TGBL, consider, and I consider it too, kind of the definitive history of pro wrestling in Northern California. I want to say that kind of part of the deal was that Patterson believed he was going to be figured in, get perhaps some ownership points in Roy Shire's territory. And when that did not happen, that sort of hastened his exit. Ah, okay. That, that totally makes sense. And like I said, I know that territory was beginning to dry up a little bit in, uh, right around 1977. So moving on with Ivan Koloff, we have him in another tag team match. In 1978, he's wrestling at the Bell Auditorium in Augusta, Georgia, July 24th, 1978, teaming up with Ole Anderson against Stan Hansen and Tommy Rich. The idea, me being a kid from the Northeast watching WWF wrestling, of Stan Hansen being a babyface blew my mind when I read about it in the wrestling magazines. I was like, this is impossible, but here we are. Yeah, that was my first exposure to Stan Hansen was his his uh, second run in the AWA in 85, 86. And he was, by that point, his persona was so over-the-top rednecky. Of course, he had the interview with Larry Zabisco where he coined his famous line, I got a fat wife and nine kids at home to feed. <laughs> so he was just, yeah, he was really a monster heel, you got to say, at, at that point. So I've just tried to imagine what kind of heel that he was in the 78 time range. I mean, I don't know how kind of over the top he was with that run against Bruno. Was his manager Blassie or the Wizard? Uh, Fred Blassie, although when he wrestled Bruno at Chase Stadium, Grand Wizard was his manager for the night because Fred Blassie was in Tokyo for the Ali Inoki match. Right, right. He was a corner man for Ali. Let's talk a little bit about Stan Hansen. I mean, his persona changed once he went to the AWA, that over-the-top tobacco all over him, yelling and screaming. You know, wherever he went, whether he was a babyface or a heel, he kept it as just, you know, this really big, dangerous guy from Texas who scared the hell out of you. And like I said, the over-the-top stuff he did in AWA and and later in WCW, let's just say I like the old stand better. (laughs) Yeah, and I could see that from the, the older Georgia Championship Wrestling TV that you can find on YouTube where he's definitely... He's a heel, but he he has a heel edge, but he's not tearing down the set or anything when he's talking to Gordon Soley. And then when he's a babyface, he's just 
seems pretty uh, level-headed as well. So, like, watching those interviews, I'm, I'm like, wow, okay. That's quite an interesting shift that he made later in his career. So, at that point, Ivan, Ivan and Ole, of course, they were a fairly dominant tag team in Georgia. They were. In that period between, like, 78 and 79, when Ole had his his strategic babyface turn. And then I assume they teamed up again after the five-on-one beatdown in the cage. They did. They were teaming regularly in 1982, and they kind of had this um, three-way feud. It was the Freebirds, Michael Hayes and Terry Gordy, but he was back in Oklahoma, versus Stan Hansen and Ole Anderson versus the Samoans. And it was a great feud until the Samoans just packed up and left for the WWF without notice. Right. Under the managerial auspices of Sonny King. Sonny King was actually good in Georgia, believe it or not. I thought so, at least. And when it came to being in other territories, I don't know what happened. He was actually good in Florida in 1979, but he he definitely lost something when he went back to Watts in 1984. Yeah. To give credit to Sonny King, though, on, on the other hand, in 79 Florida, when you've got a uh, staple composed of Don Morocco, Joe LaDuc. Uh, Pac Song? Oh, yes, Pac Song, Nam. Pretty heavy dudes that you could get downtown Bruno in there and <laughs> could have made him look good, too. Or Mickey Poole or, or whomever. I was greatly entertained by downtown Bruno when I first saw him in 1987. I thought the guy was a riot, and he was just a one-trick pony, unfortunately. You know, you've seen one downtown Bruno interview, you've basically seen them all. Yes, yes, for sure. Though, I guess I have a soft spot for him for his WWF name, which is about the closest you could come to my own name, Harvey Whippleman. But, uh, yeah... He was a good friend of The Rock. That's, that's about all you can say. <laughs> okay, I, I, stop me if I've told this story before, but I was in Portland, Maine for the TV taping when uh, Harvey Whippleman made his debut, uh-huh. and I had been at the beach for like three or four days, and this is pre-cell phone, pre-internet, pre-everything, 1991. They announce this guy, he comes out, and everyone starts screaming peewee, peewee at him. And I'm like, what is uh, going on? And like the person next to him was like, you didn't hear about what went on with Pee Wee Herman? I'm like, no, what happened? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> okay, so they're saying Harvey Whippleman was watching Nurse Nancy in a, <laughs> in a dark and slightly sticky theater before making his debut. Oh, Pee Wee, just buy a VCR. <laughs> but can yeah. you imagine the, being the guy, the perfect stranger, sitting next to me in Portland having to explain what the hell happened with Pee Wee Herman? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. That's one of those only in pro wrestling fandom moments, I think. He must have been saying, how many times is this guy going to say, what? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> ah. uh, oh, boy. Auspicious debut. <laughs> yes, to say the least. Downtown Bruno can thank Pee Wee Herman's incident for him having a career. I'm convinced of that. But anyway, <laughs> 1979, Iron Mike Sharp defeats Ivan Koloff at the Superdome in New Orleans, Louisiana. I mean, Ivan obviously has a rep of being one of the most cooperative guys out there, but 
there was a time when Iron Mike Sharp was on his way up in the business and he kind of took a wrong turn to the WWF in 1983 and that was kind of the end for him. Yeah. Or the end for him as a main eventer. Right. Yeah, Mike Sharp is interesting to... I know this was around the time, slightly just before Bill Watts uh, broke up the partnership with Leroy McGurk and then started his own promotion in Louisiana and Mississippi. Mike Sharp, from what I saw of him in the older episodes of Mid-South Wrestling from around 82 or so, seemed like a, a fairly decent perhaps bland, a pretty good baby face, who he, uh, I forget who he beat to capture the, I want to say the Mississippi state title. It might have been Mike George. Mike George, okay. And then he had a a little bit of a feud with Skendor Akbar. A very funny feud. Yeah. His big finish was a pile driver, which he he applied to many a person. And then he just kind of faded away, and the next thing you saw of him in Mid-South was a a match in Houston where he got absolutely ground into a fine pace by Kamala. So, you know, that's what happens when you, you're on the way out. And I know he ended up in Georgia probably not too long after that, yep. uh, before he latched on with the World Wrestling Federation, where he made a comfortable living. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll say this about Iron Mike Sharp, and I'll talk about the feud with um, Skandor Akbar. I mean, it was pie-in-the-face funny. Iron Mike Sharp would wrestle one of Akbar's guys, and after the match, he would pile-drive Skandor Akbar. It happened every week, and it got funnier and funnier every week. I got a kick out of it. I don't know. But when he came to the WWF in 83, he had Lou Albano as his manager, and yeah. I totally bought him as like a one-and-done guy against Bob Backlund. And he did wrestle Backlund in uh, Philadelphia, and I saw him against Backlund somewhere. I can't find it. I think it was either Portland or Providence, but it was the main event. And I went, I mean, I, and I took the drive, too. Yeah, boy, I don't know when it was that he started with his gimmick with the, not only the black uh, armband, but also the uh, the backing off, whoa, 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 uh, sort of gimmick he adopted, too. And the I am not a wimp thing. Oh, okay. Forgot about that. Very That's how memorable that was. <laughs> now, I, I, I connect the word wimp with Iron Mike Sharp to this day. But anyway. <laughs> okay, God bless his soul. Yeah, absolutely. Double bull rope match, 1980. Uh, July 26, 1980, at the Bayfront Center in St. Petersburg, the tag team of Bugsy McGraw and Dusty Rhodes defeat Ivan Koloff and Nikolai Volkov. I don't know how many of you have seen either uh, film or photos from this era, but somehow, someway, someone thought it would be a good idea to have Ivan Koloff and Nikolai Volkov as part of their gear, not their ring gear, but coming to the ring gear, in these red bathing caps that had the words USSR on the forehead. I, I don't get it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I don't know for sure the the genesis of that. I know that Volkov, yeah, was kind of wearing that gear. I don't know if it was a bathing cap or like amateur wrestling headgear. But I want to say that part of the gimmick 
about that was that there were ear coverings so he could, I don't know, drown out the booze and catcalls from the uh, staunchly pro-American anti-Russian audience. In the beginning of Smoky Mountain Wrestling, Stan Lane wore this absolutely ridiculous hairpiece. Yeah. And he did that gimmick. He he had the amateur headgear on, you know, in real life to keep the hairpiece on, but in wrestling right. uh, to drown out the booze. And it, Stan was such a comedian. He was great. And he, he made that funny. <laughs> you you want to look for that footage if you can find it. But Oh, yeah, I think... Was that also to cover up that he was getting uh, hair plugs or some sort of hair club treatment? Uh, I mean, it, it looked like a wig to me. It looked like an El- an Elvis Presley in the late 70s wig. Oh, boy. Oh, it was it was bad. <laughs> and, but, I mean, Cornette <laughs> and Stan made it funny, so God bless. Yeah. So, at this time in Florida, Ivan Koloff and Nikolai Volkov as a team— I want to say they were managed by Oliver Humperdinck. They were at first, yes. Yeah, yeah. And Humperdinck was the manager of Koloff when Dusty and Ivan had that uh, match to determine the 30 days in the whole stipulation. Yep. I wish more of that existed because that, I mean, I, I've i said it so many times, I used to get Florida on cable and it was pure gold. Everything was just so great. And, well, I mean, we talked about Florida on the show before, but when... Sir Oliver Humperdinck had to be Dusty Rhodes' servant for 30 days. And when the 30 days were up and Sir Oliver's like, okay, I want my wrestlers back, like Lord Alfred Hayes just took over and Nikolai Volkov, I mean, just beat Sir Oliver Humperdinck into pulp. It was memorable. Yeah, Volkov and uh, Bobby Jaggers, I want to say, yeah. It was Jaggers who did it, and he had no connection to Sir Oliver Humperdinck. But Volkov mm. just sat there and watched. It was it was perfect. It was, it was just so well-written wrestling. And as I was speaking, Lou, it dawned on me that, okay, we're talking about the red bathing suit caps, right? This is when Devo, yes, Devo, was on Fridays, <laughs> and they kind of debuted the red flower pot thing. I, I hope uh-huh. that's not where it came from. <laughs> <laughs> oh, lordy. Though, I don't know, though a song like Whip It sounds like a natural match with Russian chain matches. Ah. (laughs) Uh, That's just me. (laughs) All right. 1981, Ivan Koloff defeats Ricky Steamboat at the Cincinnati Gardens. Uh, July 25th, 1981, at this point, Ivan Koloff is the Mid-Atlantic champion, and he is one of the top heels in Mid-Atlantic wrestling. Yeah, and... I want to say I've seen backstage photos of him wearing the Mid-Atlantic belt, that classic design from that time, and then also wearing like a fur cap and a fur coat. And it just, you know, it just screamed uh, Imperial Russian majesty at that point. And yeah, by that time, Koloff, I'm trying to think when was the first time that he first went to uh, the Carolinas. I'm thinking it was around 75 or so when the IWA went kaput in the Carolinas and then the Mongols and then the mass superstar and Ivan Koloff kind of came in. I think Koloff was was definitely a little bit before mass superstar in uh, mid-Atlantic. I want to say superstar got started in either late 76 or early 77. Ivan Koloff was there in 1975 and 
I don't think he won any titles, but I know he had a big feud with Wahoo McDaniel. Ah, okay. Boy, whenever you talk about somebody as like, yeah, had a run with Wahoo McDaniel, it's like, oh, oh, they needed a lot of Ben Gay and Neosporin probably for their pecs. Lots of ice, yeah. Yeah. Now, you were talking about Ivan Koloff's attire. This, You're right. He started going a little bit, not over the top, but I didn't think so. But, like, you know, he was wearing the big fur coat and the big fur hat. And right around this time, Ivan Koloff had a tattoo of an eagle on his tricep. And he mm-hmm. had it modified right around this time so that he had a, a Russian sickle, the tip of the Russian sickle, was going through the head of the American Eagle and blood was coming out. Like, I remember the first time I saw that and just being like, wow, that, that, that's pretty badass. Wow. That's definitely quite a way to uh, to modify the tattoo, which I assume he got in his uh, wayward youth up in uh, Quebec province. I'm guessing so. Yeah. All right. 1982. We have NWT Siberian Salt. I don't get this one, but Siberian Salt is somehow involved in Greenville, South Carolina, July 26, 1982. Jimmy Valiant, the Mid-Atlantic champion, defeats Ivan Koloff. So Ivan is still in the Mid-Atlantic area, but he's going further down the card. Yeah. And if you, like me, uh, listen to all of the Arcadian Vanguard shows in the canon, you would know that not that long ago on Mike Sempervivi and Roman Gomez's Mid-Atlantic Championship podcast, they covered this uh, particular period in mid-82 with Ivan Koloff going up against Jimmy Valiant. And I want to say that as far as Siberian salt, it was kind of Ivan Koloff's version of a coal miner's glove match. Okay. But instead of coal, they're mining for salt in the frozen tundra of Siberia. Oh, no. (laughs) So it's like, put that salt miner's glove on the pole and, you know, (laughs) have a Pier 6 brawl or whatever pier is in Russia. So, that yeah, that was kind of how that came about. It was kind of funky. It was interesting, too, because Ivan Koloff, he had his standard Russia superior Americans or inferior sort of rap. But during this feud with Jimmy Valiant, the vitriol was turned up to about 11 or 12. And he was just on TV talking to Bob Cottle and saying how much he wanted uh, Jimmy Valiant to die. Oh, boy. And that he was going to do the dispatching himself. It was kind of odd. <laughs> so, but I guess a, you know, a memorable sort of uh, feud between the two of them for the... I want to say the NWA TV title. Yeah. Okay. I mean, a couple of things. Number one, I I mean, I I miss little things like that in wrestling. Instead of having a coal miners glove match, well, we'll have a Siberian salt match. I mean, it makes sense. And I'm sure Greenville, I don't know if that's a big town or a small town, but no matter what, you know, people are going to be happy to see that. And number two, man, I, I, I was just thinking today. When I saw him pop up on Twitter, I've got to have Mike Sempervivi back on here. We had a good show last time he was on. Oh, yeah. Old Semp, he, uh, he's a good guy. I listen to him all the time on his uh, daily show and for sure the Mid-Atlantic podcast. So. Recommended. 1983, after a five-year absence, Ivan Koloff finally comes back to the WWF. 
He wrestled S.D. Jones at Madison Square Garden uh, July 30th, 1983. I've said this on the show before. I saw Bob Backlund against Ivan Koloff. I want to say it was May 1983 in the Boston Garden. At that point, it was the best match I'd ever seen live. They went like 35, 40 minutes, and the fans gave the match itself a standing ovation afterward. I mean, Ivan, he was starting to look a little bit older. I started to notice that. But man, he was so good. Yeah, yeah, it just sounds like a very memorable match from the the Boston Garden. So at this point, he didn't have a very long run this time in 83. I know he had the angle with Pat Patterson, where I think he slapped Patterson on TV or something like that. Just out of the blue, Patterson's doing his job as an announcer, and, and Ivan Koloff slaps him in the mouth. It was like, you know, whoa, where'd that come from? And of course, they went around the horn. And that coincided with uh, WWE's incursion into the state of California. So they had started up in L.A., had bought the LaBelle Territory end of 82, beginning 83. And by about the time this happened in mid-83, I think they got TV in, in Northern California, possibly just San Jose. I'm not sure because their, their first few shows up here were in San Jose, be it at the Civic Auditorium or the Municipal Stadium, which is the old minor league baseball park in San Jose. So there was as good a reason as any to get Pat Patterson back here to put asses in seats. Oh, yeah. Him against, I forget if Koloff made it out here to San Jose or if they just delegated the token Russian role to Alexia Smirnov. I have said this on the show before, like, I tended not to question what was in front of me. Like, you know, okay, I I know it makes no sense that Russians, you know, they're the one exception. They get to come to the United States and wreak havoc in pro wrestling. But I was always like, okay, Ivan Koloff's a Russian, Nikita Koloff's a Russian. Like, Alexis Smirnov, I never bought it. I'm like, this guy is from Brooklyn or something. Oh, that boy, his Quebecois accent, his dialect, it was so prominent (laughs) that's just like okay man i had no idea he was michelle the judge dubois but you just knew he definitely wasn't from eastern europe (laughs) it it reminds me of that moment where where adrian adonis first came to the wwf and he's like you know this guy this new guy from new york gimmick and as soon as he opened his mouth the very first time i'm like yeah this guy's from new york okay (laughs) Yeah, should have had Buck Owens as his ring music because, yeah, he was definitely from Bakersfield. (laughs) All right, and this was Ivan Koloff's last run in the WWF ever. He never returned, which I guess surprises me a little bit, but if you think about it, he had, and we'll talk more about this later, but he had a prominent role as Nikita Koloff's kind of handler, and I, I'm not sure if New York was going to have a better gig for him than that, and by the time he got let go from the MWA, I want to say very early 1989, he was one of the first cuts from the, you know, the new ownership. He was just, he looked, he just looked too old. Right, absolutely. So, end of 83, it was probably not too long after the inaugural Starcade that Ivan Koloff ended up back in Mid-Atlantic, aligned with Gary Hart and Dick Slater, Bob Orton. And it was early 84 when Dick Slater, who was the Mid-Atlantic champion, 
defeated Greg Valentine to capture the U.S. title. He was, Dick Slater was served an embarrassment of riches in terms of championships, and he just decided to gift the Mid-Atlantic title to Ivan Kovov. And somehow the promotion allowed that. Yeah, yeah, and for whatever reason, uh, Dory Funk Jr. decided to book it that way, even though, you know, in the past, at least the George Scott days, there's a pretty solid sense that you couldn't hold two titles at once. I mean, go back to 79 when Flair was a U.S. champion, and he vacated the championship when he and Blackjack Mulligan won the world tag team titles. So the idea of just uh, passing a belt over seemed especially egregious. Yeah, and very heelish. And like I said, the, the promotion just, you know, okay, Ivan Koloff's the champion now. <laughs> anyway. Exactly, to have that legendary run in title swaps with Angelo Mosca Jr. <sighs> I saw a picture of Angelo Mosca Jr. I saw an interview with him. Uh, I read an interview with him not too long ago after Ivan had passed away. He looks like he's doing good. And he, you know, just came right out and said, you know what, pro wrestling, it wasn't for me. Yeah, and it sounds like reading some of Greg Oliver's articles, uh, memorializing Mosca Sr., there was one article where he talked in depth with uh, Angelo Jr., and I was saying that... That's where I got it. ...where his, yeah, run as a wrestler was merely kind of, you know, predicated on kind of reuniting with his dad. I guess your parents separated early in his life. Okay, and yeah, that is where I got the article, and I, I wasn't trying to not credit Greg. Uh, longtime friend. I've been friends with Greg since the 80s. I just didn't think of it. But people forget, Angelo Mosca Jr. came to the WWF fall of 1984, and he lasted maybe a month. I think I saw him in Boston. I saw him wrestle somewhere. And then he just disappeared, and he decided that, hey, this isn't the life for me, and there's no shame in that. Yeah, and of course, that coincided with uh, Big Ange becoming one of the commentators on, I think, championship wrestling when they were taping in Hamilton, Ontario. It was all-star wrestling. It was the B-show. All-star. Okay. And we'll talk about this on another show, but, I mean, Angelo was the worst announcer imaginable. I mean, it just did not work. Uh, Yeah. He was a personality, but... uh... (laughs) Not that kind of personality. Exactly. 1984, Don Kernodal and Ivan Koloff defeat Mark Youngblood. uh, Excuse me. They go to a draw with Mark Youngblood and the Renegade uh, at Fleming Stadium in Wilson, North Carolina, July 26, 1984. Don Kernodal, let's talk about him for a little bit. He becomes a star in mid-Atlantic wrestling, 82-83 teaming with Sergeant Slaughter. Then he comes to the WWF, and literally, he gets no push. He's there at the same time as Sergeant Slaughter, and just no connection made to the two of them. He was uh, he was a TV jobber. He got nothing. And then he, he goes back to Mid-Atlantic and immediately wins half of the tag team titles. I remember being a little bit confused by this. I'm like, okay, if he can't win a match in the WWF, what does it say about Mid-Atlantic Wrestling that he's half of the tag team champions? Yeah. I want to say, was he introduced to the crowd by Tom Miller, the ring announcer at the first arcade? Just to say, our local wrestler legend, he's coming back, Don Cronodal. I want to say I have a faint memory of that. Not long after, he ends up teaming up with Bob Orton Jr., And since uh, Dick Slater was in the midst of a singles run with the U.S. title, 
that team didn't really pair up anymore. So it was Kernodal and Orton, managed by Gary Hart, who won the World Tag Team title from, I forget who, I, I want to say it was the Young Bloods, but I'm not sure. And then, uh, I guess the less we talk about the renegade gimmick, the better. I mean, we're not talking about the pale Ultimate Warrior ripoff in the mid-90s in WCW. It was Jay Youngblood getting in some sort of injury angle. I forget if it was with guys like Kernodal and Koloff or was it against the Briscoes kind of near the end of their run. But all of a sudden, he just comes back really kind of dark face paint. And they stop calling him Jay Youngblood. They just call him the Renegade. And it, nah, it didn't really work. It didn't work. And the reason I have heard behind it was that, you know, Jay Youngblood was never a great body guy. But by 84, I mean, he was he was kind of a mess, let's be honest. And they just put him in that, that outfit, or he came up with the idea to put himself in the outfit, kind of to hide the body. Because if you recall... He had long trunks and in, in kind of a, a tank top shirt with that gimmick. And it's like, yeah. Jay, instead of doing that, why don't you just lose the weight, man? Right. Uh, that's unfortunate. Yeah, because Jay was, of course, over like Rover for about five years. Mm -hmm. And then that was kind of the end of it. He kind of faded away, went to Florida, then I guess went to Australia, New Zealand. I think that's where he died. Yes. Yeah. I think, if I recall correctly, I mean, Steamboat and Youngblood, Jay Youngblood, were tag team champions. Steamboat retired, and I think they had a tournament for the titles, which may have been won. That's right. By Orton and Kernodle, or, or Koloff and Kernodle, excuse me. And yeah, I got to see or Orton and Kernodle team up at the New Jersey Meadowlands against, I think, Wah no, it wasn't Wahoo McDaniel. It was, it might have been against the Youngbloods, but I'm not sure. Okay. That uh, fills in my memory gaps there. Okay. And, you know, a little bit more about Kernodal. They had that big build-up angle where he was teaming with Ivan Koloff. He was running around with Nikita Koloff. They presented him a Russian flag, which he gladly took. And then they turned on him, and they, they just seemed to put a lot of Dusty, seemed to put a lot of thought, energy, and TV time into this angle, and then they just kind of dropped it. I, I don't know what happened. Yeah, it was definitely, for sure, it was built up in part to introduce the young and green just-arrived nephew of Uncle Ivan and to sort of hype Don Cornodal as one of his main trainers at that point. And that led up to the program with uh, Dusty and Manny Fernandez, which, of course, culminated with the cage match in, I think, Greensboro, where Dusty and, and Manny beat them for the title. Koloff was pissed, blamed it, you know, blamed the loss on Kernodal. Then That's right. Nikita came in, and they wrapped the Russian chain around his neck, and I think might have been Ivan who came off the top with the forearm across the neck. They did the whole serious injury angle, and then Keith Larson comes out and that's when we find out he's uh, Wally Kernodal. And that, of course, leads up to Starcade 84, where Ole Anderson comes back to face the Russians. And he said he was going to have a big, bad partner. 
to avenge Don Kernodal, and it ended up being Keith Larson, which was one of the more, I'm sure, disappointing payoffs to an angle like that. Yeah. So Kernodal was out and then came back, did the, for lack of a better term, they captured the flag matches with Ivan and Nikita. And then Kernodal kind of aligned himself with Rick Steamboat to where in late 84, early 85, Kernodal was in a cage match. Somehow it ended up the odds against him. He was getting pounded in the cage. They had locked the cage. And then Rick Steamboat dug down deep inside and hulked up and somehow pulled the cage door off of its hinges. Oh, no. To get in and, and make the save for Don Kernodal. Yeah, uh, it was. I want to say that was one of the last things you saw Steamboat doing before he left for the WWF. I do know that Steamboat was, I mean, he just wasn't very happy with Dusty taking over and making all the changes that he did and trying to make Ricky a an honorary Texan where Dusty gives him cowboy boots. And in real life, Ricky just, you know, that's not who he was. He didn't want to wear cowboy boots. So off to New York, he went. Yeah, he said he could see the writing on the wall when they brought in Nikita and Dusty gave him the uh, the gimmick name, the Russian Nightmare as, you know, being the polar opposite of the American dream. And Steamboat said, oh, yeah, uh, that's how Dusty is going to book it. And he just didn't see a future for himself. And he, he, I'll tell you, he did the right thing. He got a nice push in the WWF and eventually was able to come back to JCP right right when, when it was being sold. But anyway, 1985. We are in Columbia, South Carolina. The Rock and Roll Express defeat Ivan Koloff and Crusher Khrushchev for the NWA Tag Team Championships. This was a crazy match because the Rock and Roll won the titles the night they, as far as I know, their first night in the territory. That's right. That's a hell of a way to (laughs) jumpstart a run in a territory because they have been, uh, the Rock and Rolls had been going great guns in Mid-South. So that's how they were put over. They were smashed over. And then, so then you had the triumvirate of the two Russians and the Russian sympathizer working with the Rock and Roll Express, getting the titles back, then swapping the titles back to the Rock and Rolls uh, at the, in the cage match at Starcade 85. So at that point, you had Ivan definitely in the senior role as kind of player coach. Yeah. I mean, that's when I started seeing Ivan Koloff as, you know, this is the twilight of his career. He could still go, but when you put him in that role as more Nikita Koloff's mouthpiece and spokesperson, like, I I just didn't see him as a main eventer anymore. Exactly. That was about the time that I first saw Ivan Koloff because... Late 85, early 86 is when Jim Crockett started airing Worldwide Wrestling out here. And it wasn't until the end of 86, but they started running shows out here. The first time I saw Ivan Koloff by then, he was definitely showing his age. He was certainly a lot smaller than he was at his kind of drawing peak in the early to mid-70s. And it was him as the mouthpiece, more or less, for Nikita And also for Crusher, who early 86, of course, messed up his knee horribly and thus was out of action. 
Yeah, I, I remember that. Jim Cornette was talking about how everyone pitched in, everyone from the promotion pitched in $25 a week to help the guy, you know, keep his head above water and, and Crockett match yeah. that. So, I mean, that, that, that's teamwork right there. I, I mean, we're talking about Ivan Koloff. Like, now he's kind of in the, in the twilight of his career. Moving up three years, they had a show at the Boston Garden, April 1988. And I don't know why they did this. This made no sense to me. The main event was a cage match, and it was Dusty Rhodes. Was, it was going to be his last night before his suspension because he wanted to wrestle in the Boston Garden, allegedly. Uh, big Celtics fan, Dusty was. Uh, it was Dusty Rhodes, Nikita Koloff, and the Road Warriors against Ric Flair, Arn Anderson, Tully Blanchard, and Ivan Koloff. This is when they were short of horsemen after Luger left. And by this point, one of these things was not like the other. Ivan Koloff did not fit in with those other guys. I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> no, no doubt. I guess that particular day they decided to show some mercy on J.J. Dillon <laughs> and not have him be the bleeding crash test dummy. Again. Yeah, for Dusty and the roadies and... I recently saw that shoulder separation again he suffered at the first war game. Uh, oh, that was brutal. Yeah, and it really, boy, I guess it shows his dedication, if not a perverse dedication to the business, that he forewent getting the surgery and just having that hump with him to this day. Uh, that that That's awful. I mean, I, a little bit more about the Boston Garden Show in 88. Supposedly, they had Koloff in there because, oh, well, the Boston fans are going to remember Ivan Koloff as WWF champion. Now, at the time, I'm like, that's 17 years ago. No one even here probably even knows about it. And he hasn't been, Koloff hadn't been to Boston or, or in a main role or the last run he had in the WWF was five years ago. So I'm not sure if that's true or not, but I do know it's what I heard. 1986, we have a Texas Tornado match. Manny Fernandez and Ron Garvin defeat the Russians, Ivan Koloff and Nikita Koloff, the Great American Bash Tour at the Norfolk Scope, July 25th, 1986. Kind of a weird tag team to have going over the Russians, in my opinion. Yeah, that seems rather uh, sort of patchwork there, because you had, at that point, you had Manny Fernandez, who was pretty much uh, the main uh, protector of Jimmy Valiant in the Paul Jones feud. And you had Ronnie Garvin at that point had come off his first run of title matches against Ric Flair. And then it led to the feud with Tully Blanchard that began on TV with a great match for the national title. I love that match. With Dusty taping up his fist and, and of course, a Dusty finish. You know, they were feuding still over the national title over that summer in tape fist matches. So on this particular night in Norfolk, they just put Manny and, and Hands of Stone together against Ivan and Nikita. Ivan by himself wasn't doing much at that point. And Nikita, of course, was in the middle of the best of seven series against Magnum for the U.S. title. So it just seems like, a you know... Let's give these individual feuds a rest on this particular stop, but still have them on the card. I mean, one thing, Dusty, he had a real challenge in front of him because he had the Great American Bash 1986, and I give him credit, he did not 
present the same show every night. I mean, he had Ric Flair, you know, 13 different challengers. He didn't, you know, throw out Magnum and Nikita every single night. So, I mean, I, I give him credit for that. That's right. And then with the, the country acts, of course, uh, your man, Delbert McClinton <laughs> and Joe Ely and Waylon Jennings and David Allen Coe and, and whatnot. And it seemed like just about almost every match on the on the Bash Tour were stick matches and blood fests. So it's like, okay, let, let's make this a Texas tornado match, you know, double, triple juice, and and just a brawl. I mean, I remember, well, I remember getting the, the tape of Starcade 85 for the first time and just being like, wow, this is just an unbelievable juice fest. I mean, and, and like you were saying, they're just coming up with stuff like, you know, Manny Fernandez and Abdul the Butcher, who I don't even remember having a program in some kind of a, you know, Mexican death match. Just to, just to yes, have sombrero it. on a pole. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. And <laughs> but you brought up that Ronnie Garvin versus Tully Blanchard match from Worldwide Wrestling 1986. That is absolutely one of my favorite matches of all time. It took up the entire hour of Worldwide Wrestling. Yeah. I remember watching it. At midnight on Channel 25, I want to say April or May of 1986, and just being, you know, my eyes coming out of my head, it was so good. Yeah, I mean, everything about it was so well composed that, you know, the way that not too far earlier, it was the Horsemen in Atlanta, WTBS, where they they did a, you know, four-on-one attack on Ron Garvin. I want to say they gave him a gourd buster, uh, then they put his hand on the post, and Tully took jj's ever deadly loafer and smack that you know his lethal hand and so during the whole match of course it was tully was working on that wounded hand and then when you got to the to the end where both guys were down in the ring on one side of the ring you had jj giving tully a roll of quarters the other side of the ring you had dusty who was doing commentary get up and get a roll of tape and tape up Garvin's fist. And then you just had that where they meet in the center, Garvin hits the knockout blow, and then Tully's roll of quarters just explodes all over the ring. Yeah. And then just the heartbreak after that, you know, when uh, the decision was reversed. Tommy Young frantically waving his arm, saying, no tape, no tape. And it... On this night, Dusty Rhodes really made that match 100% better through his commentary. He he was doing a great job on that night. Uh, seek that out. If you can find it on YouTube, if you haven't seen it before, you definitely want to check it out. All right, 1987, we have a double Russian chain match with the Road Warriors defeating Ivan Koloff and Manny Fernandez uh, in Fayetteville, North Carolina, July 27, 1987. What a mess with the departure of Rick Rude and the whole NWA tag team titles in 1987. Let me back up a little bit. Rick Rude quits the promotion while still part of the tag team champions. They announced that Ivan Koloff is taking his place. The new tag team champions are Manny Fernandez and Ivan Koloff as they were on this night. Then Manny Fernandez, for whatever reason, leaves. <laughs> and then they decide to air on TV a match where they announce that Rick Rude and Manny Fernandez have lost the NWA champions, <laughs> tag team champions. And they show a match against the Rock and Roll Express. 
And I remember it was like July or August, and I'm watching this match. I'm like, okay, it's North Carolina, and everyone has a coat. <laughs> okay, that's tremendously perceptive that you would notice that that small detail. Wow. I mean, and, and like I said, they, they already announced that, you know, Fernandez and and Koloff are now the champions. Now we go into this reverse time warp where Rick Rude comes back for one match, and he's now the tag champion, except he loses. I mean, it, it looked terrible. And I mean, I by this point, I was getting the Observer, and I was getting, you know, obviously people kvetch together. But I mean, if, if I wasn't getting the Observer, I'd be like, you know, what is going on here? Oh, and Rick Rude's on WWF television now. Yes. And at this uh, by this point, Ivan Koloff, so we're talking July 87, that would have been nine months prior that Magnum had his accident, and they turned Nikita, and then Ivan Koloff was sort of a uh, sort of in the mix there as the antagonist for Nikita, besides the Horseman. And by this point, mid '87, I'm not sure if Dave Sheldon and Jack Victory came on the scene as the Russian assassins yet. No, that was 1988. Okay, but by this point, Ivan Koloff was, I think, managed by Paul Jones, mm-hmm. and you know they just sort of kept that association. Until 88, when I think it was Jones and the Russian Assassins turned on Uncle Ivan. And that was very near the end. That was at the brutal, bitter end of JCP. That was like the last month or so. Exactly. And then Turner bought the promotion. And you didn't see Jimmy Valiant or Paul Jones or Ivan Koloff really again. Those were among the first cuts. Yeah, I remember Ivan showing up briefly on WCW-TV as a heel. I want to say sometime around 89 or 90. It was just a TV squash match. He went over, and that was pretty much it. I didn't see him in any feuds or anything. I don't remember Ivan Koloff in 89. And, you know, I'll say this, and I'm not saying it to be mean, because I am a big Ivan Koloff fan. Obviously, I just had a show about him, right? By that point, it really felt like, and Ivan could still work, but he had been with the promotion for five years. He was looking like an older person, and really it was time to just free that spot up, in my opinion, for a younger talent. And that's exactly what they did. They they sent a bunch of guys home, and Ivan Koloff was one of the first. And it was, you know, it was, wasn't the end of his career, but effectively it kind of was. Well, on a national scale, eh, it's pretty much all she wrote. Yeah, they brought him in to Herb Abrams' UWF in 1991, and it was that was kind of a complete disaster, and ECW used him in the beginning. And, I mean, fine, they needed some credible names, but yeah, Ivan Koloff, it was kind of the end for him. And But at the end of a great career, former WWF champion, uh, I mean, held it was the top heel wherever he went for a long time, and he is in the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame, and I believe he absolutely belongs there. Oh, undoubtedly, and that's just another kind of one of the mysteries of why he has not been inducted in some way in either the legacy portion or the main so-called wing of the WWE Hall of Fame. I mean, he was one of the plaintiffs mm-hmm. in that cockamamie class action suit regarding concussions. 
against WWE. But, I mean, there had to be some reason going back to his last run in late 83 that, you know, he was never mentioned or appeared again for Titan Sports. There was a rumor going around in like 88. Oh, my. I, I, let's just say there was a rumor going around. I'll underline that. In like 88, 89, that the WWF was going to bring him in as some sort of a leprechaun character. I don't know if that's true or not. There are all kinds of crazy rumors we were hearing back then. But there was talk that the WWF was going to completely repackage him. And on that sour note... Oh, man, give him back his original gimmick of Red McNulty. Something like that. <laughs> like I said, there, there was... I mean, some of the rumors came true. I mean, I heard... In early 88, that the WWF wanted to bring in the sheep herders, and, you know, I heard about what they were going to do. I was like, yeah, right, and they're on TV. I'd, I'd heard that they were going to do basically the gimmick that they did, but they were going to be called the Leathernecks. And when they finally got there, instead, they were the Bushwhackers. But, like I said, I mean, <laughs> so I guess it might have been true. Lou, I want to thank you for, for being the guest, kind of not exactly last minute, but like more like 24 hours notice. I really appreciate it. Always here to fill in when needed. Well, thank you again, and I want to thank everyone for listening. We'll be back next week, and I want to thank our producer, Lou Kippelman, for all of the great work he does. And this has been a presentation of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And this concludes our podcast day.